morning. You're happy to see each other. That's good. Good fellowship. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We want to look at the first 11 verses, Christ's triumphal entry, which is a very key turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So let's uh, have a word of prayer together. Lord, we thank you for your word, the living word of God, which is uh, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to do that that deepest work in our hearts. So, Lord, have your way in our hearts as we once again open the Bible and study the Word of God together. We commit our time to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. The theme is Christ the King, which will become prominent in the study this morning. We have worked our way down to chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the King. We now come to the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 21 presents five key events in the Jerusalem area related to this last week. And so note what these uh, five events are. We have the triumphal entry that we are considering this morning. And then the cleansing of the temple, the lesson of the fig tree, conflict over Christ's authority... And then parables indicting Israel's religious leaders at the end of the chapter. Well, today in our study, we come to one of the climactic turning points in Christ's ministry, namely what is commonly called the triumphal entry. Well, as seen in John chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus had come from Jericho to Bethany about six days before the Passover. Actually, six days before the Passover. Uh, Bethany was located about uh, two miles east of Jerusalem. So just put the map up here. Uh, Come down from Jericho, come to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, about two miles. And uh, as he is there, um, in close proximity, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, with that in mind, as far as the context, the family of Lazarus, Martha and Mary... Lazarus, that was the family. But they made a supper for Jesus. And evidently, Jesus arrived there on Friday, stayed there through the Sabbath, and then entered into Jerusalem on Sunday in what has come to be called Palm Sunday. Now, it is thought that Jesus probably went back and forth between Bethany, probably staying with this family, and Jerusalem throughout this last week. Now, we know from our study last week that a great crowd followed Jesus out of Jericho. In addition, there were many Jews coming from every direction to celebrate the Passover. Now, it is estimated that about 2 million Jews would annually show up in Jerusalem for the Passover. So, um, you can imagine the massive crowd that is congregating around this event. Well, it's in this context that Jesus makes his last trip up to Jerusalem. And this visit was very different in that Christ's entrance on this occasion was specifically planned and promoted so that prophecy might be fulfilled. Prior to this, Christ had cautioned people not to make him known as the Messiah, but now it is purposely put on full display. In Bethany, there was fervor over the raising of Lazarus from the dead, as I say, which happened shortly before this, and had reached a point where the Sanhedrin, that is, the Jewish Supreme Court, had decided they needed to get rid of Jesus. 
once and for all, because they were concerned that all this messianic fervor is going to bring the Romans down upon them to where they as a nation might even be destroyed because of it. So with messianic enthusiasm over Jesus developing to a high fever pitch, this caused the religious leaders in Israel to plot Christ's death. And in their minds, he had to go. Now it's a kind of amusing uh, to see how callous they had become, discounting even obvious evidence, such as Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that doesn't happen every day. I mean, what do you do with this guy who's been raised from the dead? In fact, the, uh, the evidence was so obvious, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. You know, if you've got evidence that kind of is in the way of where you, you want to be, I guess you just try to kill the evidence. And you see, they were not interested in objective truth. Well, the significance of the triumphal entry, so-called, is seen in the fact that it is recorded in all four Gospels. And so let's pick it up, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied... And a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now it is thought that this little town of Bethphage was about halfway between Bethany and Jerusalem. About one mile outside of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives is an important place in the Bible. uh, Both historically and prophetically, eschatologically. It was from there that the glory of the Lord departed as it left the temple, as seen in Ezekiel. It was from there that Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, as seen in Acts chapter 1. And it is to the Mount of Olives that Jesus will one day return and set his feet down, as seen in Zechariah chapter 14. So uh, note uh, where we're talking about here. Bethany came there six days before the Passover, This is where Lazarus was raised. But then Bethphage, just on the slope of the Mount of Olives, right outside uh, the temple, right outside Jerusalem. And so this is where we find them at this point. From Bethphage, which literally means house of figs, Jesus sent two of his disciples to a nearby village to get a donkey tied up with her colt and then bring them to him. Now we see here in verse 2 the omniscience, the supernatural knowledge of Christ on display. You see, he told them exactly what they would find in this village, namely a donkey tied up with her colt. Now the donkey was an animal symbolic of humility and peace. Uh, For example, when Solomon was introduced to Israel as their next king, he really came as a, as a king of peace. Now, David had been a man of war. But Solomon is introduced to the nation as a king of peace. And he is brought to them riding in on a donkey. Only Matthew mentions the colt's mother. Perhaps to emphasize that it was a young colt uh, which Jesus was to ride. As both Mark and Luke point out that this colt had never been ridden. Verse 3 continues, and if anyone says anything to you, okay, you're going to get the the donkey and the colt, and then they say, hey, 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 
you can't take that donkey. If somebody says something to you, then you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, this may indicate an element of prearrangement, perhaps. uh, Perhaps Jesus had earlier said to this owner, at some point, I'd like to use your donkey. And the owner said, okay, fine. When that day comes, go ahead. But we don't know that. On the other hand, perhaps this person was a believer in the Lord. And just the message that the Lord had need of the donkey was sufficient. Whatever the background specifics, again, we see the Lord knew exactly what was going to happen. And note Jesus here refers to himself here as Lord. In reference to him orchestrating these events. He was the master in charge. Lord means master. One who has controlling authority and power. Stanley Toussaint says, What is significant is the fact that this action was so contrary to his preceding ministry. After his rejection was evident, the king had carefully withdrawn from the cities and avoided the religious leaders. But now he intentionally and openly parades into Jerusalem in the midst of the hierarchy. Verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying. So verse 4 is an interpretive comment emphasizing that all this that was happening was in fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 5, here is the prophecy. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this verse is a combination quote from Isaiah 62, 11 and from Zechariah 9, 9. Under inspiration, it is quoted exactly the way it is for a specific reason. Rather than use the first clause from Zechariah 9, 9, and the bulk of the quote here is from Zechariah 9, 9, But not that first clause. Instead of using the first clause from Zechariah 9.9, Jesus brought in Isaiah 62.11 in the opening clause. You see, the Zechariah 9.9 reference begins with, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But in truth, Jerusalem largely failed to recognize Jesus as her king at this point. But rather needed to have him introduced to her. As her king, which is exactly the language adapted here from Isaiah 62, 11. Instead of being an occasion of rejoicing, Jesus wept over the city as he approached as seen in Luke 19, 41. So instead of a call to rejoice, Jesus instead quoted from Isaiah 62, 11, which fit the context perfectly as an evangelistic call to recognize Jesus for who he was as their king. So note uh, here in Isaiah 62, 11, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion. And this corresponds to tell the daughter of Zion. So we believe he, he picked up that, that emphasis that he wants to make here and brings that in. The word Zion literally means fortification. I have a grandson named Zion. I, I like that. It's a strong name. Literally means strong fortification. 
The first mention of Zion in the Bible is found in 2 Samuel 5, 7, uh, when David captured the ancient Jebusite fortress, which was thereafter called the City of David. Zion is essentially synonymous with Jerusalem and is called the City of David, as well as the City of God. Zion, in effect, is old Jerusalem in the historical sense of the word. It refers to the southeastern hill of Jerusalem. And again, this is where David built his royal palace and later where Solomon built the temple. It's that part of Jerusalem where David's palace was and where the temple was built. So Zion really signifies the epicenter of God's rule and presence on earth. I mean, the most central place, the most special place to God on planet earth. So Zion at core refers to the temple mount, but is also used in reference to the entire city of Jerusalem. So Zion, that is Jerusalem, is to be told that her king is now coming. I mean, he's just outside the city. He is coming, and that he is coming in this fashion. Lowly, humble, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this gives us very specific detail in perfect accord with Zechariah 9.9. Note this prophecy given 500 years before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But it was not a time for rejoicing. It was a time for weeping, as we see. So Christ didn't quote this first part. But then, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And that's where we pick up the quote here. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there could be no doubt that Jesus is being announced as the Messianic King who is being formally presented to Jerusalem. This was a climactic announcement. Now, earlier it had been veiled. Jesus didn't want the word to get out publicly. But it is now being heralded about explicitly. And how is this king coming? Well, he's coming in great humility. Lowly. You expect the Messiah to come in on a donkey? Well, Zechariah did. He prophesied so. He's coming lowly, as indicated in him riding in on a donkey, and very specifically a colt, meaning a young male donkey, which would be a foal, another term meaning a young donkey. So a double emphasis on young and also a young male donkey. Again, 500 years before it happened, Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah King would one day come to Jerusalem specifically riding in on a young male donkey. This was the day. And it was fulfilled to the letter. You can't make this stuff up. Note the language, behold your king, which is the theme of the book of Matthew. Presents Jesus as their Messiah, as their king. The fact that Jesus was the royal Messiah being presented could not have been more explicit. Now we saw Jesus was born king of the Jews as observed by the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Psalm 48.2 calls Jerusalem the city of the great king. 
And in Matthew 5.35, Jesus also called Jerusalem the city of the great king. Jesus is the great king coming to Jerusalem. The city of the great king. This is his special city destined to be the kingdom capital of the world. Hey, church, how about joining me in Jerusalem? You know, right after the rapture, right after we, you know, are at the beam of seat and then we come back with Jesus Christ to the earth to reign with Jesus Christ. Kingdom headquarters is going to be Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, it says. So I fully expect to make a return trip to Jerusalem. I've been there uh, once before. I'm not sure how many times D's been there. D, how many times have you been to Jerusalem, you know? Ten times. Wow. I'd like to catch up with you, but I'm not sure I have, I'm going to do that. Uh, note, uh, the Jews recognize Zechariah 9.9 as a messianic prophecy. But they also recognize Daniel 7.13 as a messianic prophecy. Now, I want you to see this. The Jews recognize both of these texts as messianic prophecies. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation. Lowly riding on a donkey. How's he coming? Lowly riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. But then Daniel 7.13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So here was the conundrum. How could the Messiah come lowly, riding on a donkey, and at the same time come with the clouds of heaven? The Jews wrestled with this. What is the answer? Well, the answer is there are two comings. At his first coming, he came to Jerusalem in humility, riding in on a donkey. But at the second coming... He will come on the clouds of heaven. Rightly divided, the Bible speaks with absolute precision at every point. Verse 6, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey, the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. So the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed. They brought the mother donkey and her foal and put clothes on them as a really a kind of a makeshift saddle. And then they set Jesus on these garments. And in comparing the Gospels, it is very clear that Jesus rode the young colt and not the mother donkey. This is significant because as related in Mark and Luke, this colt had never been ridden before. Normally, a young animal, unbroken, will buck and be unruly until trained. I know this very well as uh, an old farm boy. Grew up on the farm. We used to break horses. Uh, you know, you just don't walk out there one day and get on them and just ride them. You just don't do that. But this young animal was under the control of the Lord. Indeed, Jesus is master over all, including donkeys. We'll leave it there. In addition, a young, untrained animal like this would be expected to be spooked and out of control in the context of an uproarious crowd. You've got a huge crowd. You're putting this, this untrained, un, unbroke, unridden donkey in the midst of a crowd like this? What do you think is going to happen with that donkey? But there's no hint of it being out of control in the narrative. 
Jesus as the Lord, the king, rode into Jerusalem on this young, untrained donkey without any problem. D.A. Carson says, in the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. Thus, the events, this event points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. So it seems there were various groups converging here all at the same time. There was a great multitude that followed him from Jericho, as we saw uh, in our previous study. There were probably those who were involved in the crowd who were following because of uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, which caused all kinds of commotion just outside of Jerusalem. And then there were those in the, in the city of Jerusalem coming out to meet Jesus, wondering what all the commotion was about. So the scene was that of a really a spontaneous royal procession. Spreading their clothes on the road symbolized the crowd's submission to Jesus as king. Spreading palm branches on the ground was associated with celebrating victory for the Jews as seen on their Jewish coinage. And there's lots of examples, but here's, here's one example. Uh, this is a 2,000-year-old bronze coin uh, minted during the Jewish Bar Koba revolt. Uh, that was 132 to 136 A.D. when they were rebelling against the Roman Empire. And during that revolt, the Jews began minting coins by pressing their own insignia on top of already circulating Roman currency. And it made a statement that they would ultimately prevail in victory through their messianic hopes. David Jeremiah says, Since the days of the Maccabean revolt some 200 years before Jesus' triumphal entry, palm leaves had represented independence to the Jewish people. Whenever they felt the oppression of Rome, the Jewish people waved palms, branches from the trees, as a way of saying, We shall be free someday. So as the people were waving palm branches and laying them down on the road, they were really expressing their hope that Jesus was the Messiah who was now here to throw off Roman bondage and bring Israel into the kingdom. Now previously, Jesus had avoided such an open display of his Messiahship. But not now. He had privately made known his Messiahship to individuals but now this truth was being climactically put forth publicly before all. Now he was officially presenting himself to Jerusalem as the nation's Messiah King. Verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In this emotionally charged context of messianic fervor, the multitudes began to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's a lot being said here, but it's all messianic in nature. They were basically chanting from the messianic psalm of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was the last of what is called the Hallel Psalm. The Hallelujah Psalms. Uh, that is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And they would sing this Hallel Psalm at Passover. 
And in that psalm, we read what really they're taking from, this, uh, from these verses here. Psalm 118, 25, 26. Save now, I pray. That's translated Hosanna. This is what Hosanna means. Save now, I pray. Save now, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity, wholesomeness, wellness, where all is well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So Hosanna meant save now. Son of David was clearly a messianic title in recognition that as God promised to David in what is called the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David who would forever sit on David's throne and rule forever. This most special person that God was to send through the line of David. Thus, this was at once a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah and a petition to him to save them now. Hosanna, save now. Sadly, they did not realize how Jesus was indeed coming to save them by way of the cross. You see, they didn't understand Passover, of which Christ is ultimately the fulfillment, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, is now sacrificed for us. And when Jesus didn't turn out to be the kind of political Messiah that they expected and hoped for, they turned on him. And they called for his crucifixion within a short matter of a few days. In effect, they were here crying out for a messianic deliverance from their Roman oppressors. They were thinking about national salvation and not personal salvation from sin. And one can understand historically why they might think this way. You see, back in the Old Testament, during the time of oppression, when the Jews were oppressed by the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes, who reigned and ruled from 175 to 164 B.C., there was, in that context of oppression under Antiochus Epiphanes, there was a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer. And he led the Jews in overthrowing the Syrians, resulting in the Jewish temple being restored. And in the context of Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel 11 prophesied of some who would be holy rebels against this wickedness. Notice what Daniel prophetically said of this, of this coming time. Those who do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Doing ex great exploits for God means taking strong stands for God and accomplishing noble feats for him. They did heroic things, military things, in the name of God. And Judas Maccabeus was one of these heroic leaders. The Jews at that time hailed Judas Maccabeus as a legend and made application of his heroics to Psalm 118, which is called the Conqueror's Psalm. So Judas Maccabeus had brought about a military victory and it seems that the Jews of Jesus' day were now thinking in the same vein in relation to Jesus. Ed Glasscock says, Judas Maccabeus' deliverance was, however, a military victory. Many who hated the Romans would likewise sing Hosanna to Jesus in anticipation of their being driven out of Jerusalem, even as Maccabeus had driven out the Syrians. So they're expecting the same, same type of phenomenon. 
They were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Clearly a messianic designation as seen in Psalm 118, 26. This was a praise declaration and recognition that Jesus was the Messiah who came in the power and authority of God. The Messiah was to be the most blessed person who comes representing God and his program. Truly this was Jesus, but they did not understand God's program and what he was doing. And so they cried out, Hosanna in the highest, as if calling on God to bring about messianic deliverance by way of Jesus right now. This is the time. This is our day. He's going to throw off the Romans. The Messiah has come to deliver us from Rome, is what they were thinking. Henry Morris says, however, just five days later, these same multitudes apparently disappointed by his meek submission to arrest and torture by the Jewish and Roman rulers were calling for his crucifixion, preferring to release Barabbas, who had led a rebellion against the Romans. There's a lesson here on how people can be so fickle, claiming to believe in Jesus, but in reality, wanting him on their own terms. But that's not how it works with Jesus. We must come to him on his terms. Uh, We must accept that he is the Lord. We're not the Lord in charge of the Lord. The Lord is the Lord over us. John MacArthur says, Many people today are open to a Jesus who they think will give them wealth, health, success, happiness, and other worldly things they want. Like the multitude at the triumphal entry, they will loudly acclaim Jesus as long as they believe he will satisfy their selfish desires. But like the same multitude a few days later, they will reject and denounce him when he does not deliver as expected. When his word confronts their sin and their need of a savior, they curse him and turn away. And the way Mark phrases it, it is clear that they were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah who would usher in the kingdom there and now. Uh, Notice what Mark 11.10 says. They were saying, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they are thinking in terms of the kingdom being set up. Now, the Pharisees clearly understood the crowd was now openly recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And they were very offended by this. Notice in the cross-reference in Luke chapter 19, some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Call them off. They're calling you the the Messiah. You, You shouldn't accept that. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This was not a time to keep quiet. This was the God-ordained time for Jesus to be formally presented and recognized for who he is as the true Messiah, and nothing could stop it. That's what Jesus is saying. One commentary says, If he had previously considered the declaration of his dignity as dangerous, he now counts silence as inconceivable. Verse 10, and when he had come to into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? All the city was moved is really an understatement. It's an under-translation. You see the word translated moved, sio, is the Greek word from which we get our English word seismic, used in reference to earthquakes. More literally, all of Jerusalem was greatly shaken. 
The repercussions were felt from one end of the city to the other. This had the attention of the entire city. So I say perhaps, you know, many, 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 many thousands of people collecting for the Passover. It was just like if an earthquake shook and caused disruption for the entire city. I mean, they were all shook up. And all of Jerusalem was asking, who is this that is causing all this commotion? That's the ultimate issue, by the way. Who is this? That's the right question. All the way through Jesus' ministry, this is consistently the issue. And right now, before the cross, this issue is once again being highlighted. In Matthew 16, Jesus made this the ultimate question regarding his ministry. Saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the answer was that they thought he was one of the prophets. You guys said, well, you're this one, this one, this one, or, or one of the prophets. You know, Israel never really got above the level of seeing Jesus as merely a prophet. And if that's all the further you get, you'll never get to salvation. Jesus then asked the disciples, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, under inspiration, correctly answered, you are the Christ. That is the Messiah. The anointed one, the special promised one in the Old Testament scriptures. You are the Christ, Hebrew Messiah, the son of the living God. Here's what they missed. Jesus is the promised coming one who is of the very nature of God. He is God come in the flesh. At the end of his ministry, Jerusalem is still asking who is this? No, many of the pilgrims who followed Jesus from Galilee into the city knew who he was, at least hoping that he was the Messiah, designating him as the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the religious headquarters was oblivious. Therefore, Zion had to be told, behold, your king is coming to you. They say, who is it? Behold, your king is coming to you. And they didn't see it. Jerusalem did not get it. And therefore, when Jesus came near to the city, it says he wept over it. Luke 19, 41. Stanley Toussaint says the cry of praise arose largely from the people who were visiting Jerusalem for the feast. The question originated from the inhabitants of the city. It's Jerusalem proper that is saying, who is this? Verse 11, so the multitude said, here's who it is. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. We see here the multitudes in general really didn't get it either. They too saw Jesus as merely a prophet who hailed from Nazareth in Galilee. Even though they were caught up in the excitement of this messianic moment, if you will, Yet they did not really see Jesus as the divine Messiah. There's nothing of divinity in the mix here in their thinking at all. This theme of who Jesus is drives this narrative. In the story just preceding the triumphal entry, the multitude said to the blind men, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. In contrast, the blind men cried out, calling Jesus Lord and the Son of David, believing that he as the divine the Lord, the divine human Messiah, had kingdom authority to open their eyes. 
Thus they saw him as much more than merely a prophet. We see the same phenomenon here in the triumphal entry. Some in the crowd recognize Jesus as the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. But the multitudes in general only saw Jesus as a prophet. In the emotion of the moment, they were perhaps caught up in chanting messianic lingo. But most did not really believe it. This was the general consensus of the nation. They did not see Jesus as the divine Messiah, rather only as a prophet. Thus, they missed the ultimate issue of who Jesus really is. Again, Toussaint says, this answer is a vivid portrayal of the blindness of Israel. It is not said that he is the Messiah. No. He is recognized only as a prophet. And that from miserable Nazareth, which had such a terrible reputation. The very people among whom he had performed many marvelous messianic miracles own him only as a prophet. Remember Peter in his great confession linked Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, with him being the divine son of God? This is the stuff of true saving faith. Jesus said he would build his church on this rock truth, that he is Messiah God. John then wrote the entire book of John so we might believe in Jesus as Messiah God, the Christ who is the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. You have to get that down. It's not enough to say, well, Jesus is very special. He's a prophet. No, you have to believe in him for who he is as God, the Son of God. Believing in Jesus for who he is as Messiah God is essential to a saving faith. And then building on that, we must believe in his finished work on the cross, which at this point lay straight ahead. Well, let's make some applications, shall we? This triumphal entry text is of great importance because it represents Christ's final and official presentation to Israel as their Messiah. This is seen in the fact that the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, emphasizing the Messiah being presented to Jerusalem as her king, is shown to be fulfilled to the letter in this event. Further evidence that this was his official presentation to Israel is seen in the fact that the parables Jesus gave immediately following in Matthew 21 clearly show that Jesus as the Messiah has presented himself to Israel, but has been rejected. Again, Toussaint says, the close connection of the parables with entrance into Jerusalem indicates that the interpretation of the parables is bound up with that event. Now, of great note is that this event of the triumphal entry intersects with what has been called the greatest prophecy ever given. Namely, that of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is commonly called the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. Now, in Daniel 9, 24, it tells us that God has determined 70 weeks of special dealings with his people Israel. Now, a week is a seven-year period of time. 70 times 7 is, get your calculators out, 490. So God has determined 490 years of special dealings with Israel. And a Jewish year was comprised of 360 days. So, 
the divine time clock for the 490 years began ticking when the Persian king Artaxerxes issued a decree allowing the Jews to return under Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So notice what Daniel says. Here's the prophecy. Daniel 9.25. Know therefore and understand. Know this. Understand. Get this. That from the going forth of the command, Artaxerxes' command to rebuild, that they could go back and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2. From the going forth of the command to restore and, and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 69. 69 weeks or 483 years or 173,000, 173,880 days. The street shall be built again and the wall even in, in troublesome times. So note under there, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be 483 years or 173,880 days. That's what Daniel specifically says. Now, Mark Hitchcock, who is, uh, I love Mark in terms of his prophecy emphasis. Uh, Mark Hitchcock says, the exact period of time, which is 173,880 days, is the precise number of days that elapsed from March 5, 444 B.C. until March 30th, A.D. 33. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. The precision with which this prophecy was fulfilled is staggering. That is why I call it the greatest prophecy ever given. There would be exactly 69 weeks slash 483 years slash 173,880 days from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah. And this was realized in Christ's triumphal entry. Then as Daniel goes on to say, show there would be a gap period in which there would be a pause prior to the fulfillment of the last week, the last seven-year period of time. And we are right now living in the gap period, which will come to a close with Antichrist signing a seven-year covenant with Israel, as seen in Daniel 9, 27. So here's what we have as an overview, very quick overview of the 70 weeks of Daniel. In verse 24, we have an, overweek, uh, an overview of the 70 weeks. And then in verse 25, we have the, the first 69 weeks, which come to a conclusion with the presentation until Messiah the Prince. And then the gap period in verse 26. That's where we live right now. Messiah has been presented, and now we live in the gap period. But then that final week will be the 70th week, and will begin when Antichrist signs a firm covenant with Israel. The point I am making this morning is that the 69-week period of time prophesied in Daniel 9.25 was fulfilled with exact precision to the very day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young male donkey. The until Messiah, the prince of Daniel 9.25 was fulfilled in the official presentation of Jesus to Israel as her Messiah in the triumphal entry. Indeed, this intersects with and is partial fulfillment of one of the greatest of all prophecies ever given. Now, in the cross-reference of Luke 19, Jesus zeroed in on this very day. Notice what he says. Luke 19, 42. 
If you had known, they didn't. But if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then verse 44, and level you and your children within you to the ground. This is what's going to happen. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, Hitchcock says, Jesus emphasized this day and the time to the Jewish people because he stood before them as the embodiment of this astonishing prophecy. The time of visitation had come on the exact day prophesied, but the Jewish people missed it because of their unbelief. And I like the statement from MacArthur. He says, the people knew, but they would not believe, and because they would not believe, they ceased to know. Even though the multitudes on this occasion of the triumphal entry cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they did so superficially. And this should serve as a reminder to us that there is such a thing as a superficial acclaim that is fickle and not genuine. This in general defined the crowd of that day. It defined Israel in general. You see, they said the right words, kind of like many will say, Lord, Lord, on judgment day, but never really meant it in their hearts. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they did so in a superficial way. But Jesus awaits the time when they will say it with sincerity in genuine saving faith. In fact, this is what Jesus left them with. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you will see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Israel said it superficially at Christ's first coming. But at the second coming, they will say it with sincerity. And then they will see him again. They cried out at his first coming, Hosanna, save now not realizing that Jesus came to save them from their sins by way of the cross. At his second coming, in repentance, they will cry out, Hosanna, save now. And when they do so in sincere faith, Jesus will come to their rescue and will save Israel from destruction at the hands of the world. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you this morning, here's the ultimate application of the text that we're studying this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? That's the ultimate issue. It's the ultimate issue throughout the New Testament, which I think a lot of people don't get for one reason or another. You know, we call John the gospel of belief. John wrote 90 times, he uses the word belief. He wrote so we might believe. What do we have to believe? Well, Doubting Thomas is the premier example. After the resurrection, he saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you have seen and believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. And then he goes on to give the purpose statement saying, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the special promised one who is to come, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. That's the issue of the gospel of John, the gospel of belief. It's all about who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how you have to believe in him. And you have to believe personally like Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
The Bible says in Romans 10, it's with the heart one believes under righteousness. Very important. You know, all my life I said I was a believer. I was raised in church. My mother made me watch Billy Graham, convicting as it was. Uh, you know, I was taken to VBS. You know, I, I memorized verses. I had to memorize verses to get my allowance. What's a guy to do? You had to memorize the verses. I mean, I, you know, but I would have said I believed. In fact, when I was a harvest crew just out of high school, this guy was trying to witness to me. I said, well, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. But when I really got saved, I was reading through Romans, and it says, it's with the heart one believes. Uh, you know, the Bible says even the demons believe intellectually, and they tremble emotionally. They have an emotional experience. You know what the problem with demons is? They have no allegiance. They have no heart allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's with the heart that one believes. Jeremiah 29, 13, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Believe with all your heart. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your God master? Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? That's the ultimate issue for time and eternity. Well, Jesus coming on a donkey represented humility and coming in peace. Coming on a white horse represents coming as a military conqueror. In perfect fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus came the first time in humility, presenting himself as the Messianic king, lowly riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. But the next time he comes, he's going to come in power and glory, riding on a white horse, coming in power and great glory, with many crowns on his head, as seen in Revelation 19. Stay tuned. Just as sure as the first coming prophecies were fulfilled to the letter, so also will be the second coming prophecies. He came riding on a donkey. He will yet come again riding on a white horse. Even so come Lord Jesus. Live ready. Let's stand and have our closing song.